At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. We're going to continue worshiping the Lord by listening to His Word. So if you have a Bible, we're going to continue in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning, so near the very very beginning of this great book, this great hymn book, this great prayer book, inspired by the Spirit, reserved in sacred scripture for us. What an amazing treat this book is, so unique amongst all of scripture. And um, we've been in it over the last six weeks or so, focusing on the life of our church. We talked about corporate worship the first four weeks of this series, the last few weeks we focused on some other different aspects related to the life of God's people, unity. Um, last week, we talked about God's call for us to reach the nations through Psalm 67. This week is what um, we refer to as a Campus Pastor Choice Sunday. Um, that means that we normally share uh, the same sermon series. We normally look at the same text of Scripture, each one of the different campus pastors across Woodside. But this week um, is what we call CP choice. You just get to do whatever you want to do. But because we've been in the book of Psalms, and I do delight in this book so much, I wanted us to stay here and look at Psalm 2. And this is the sermon I would preach if and when I ever get invited to the Capitol in Lansing or the Capitol in Washington, D.C., for whatever occasion, to be able to preach a sermon for the sake of of our Congress. This is the exact message. I'm already ready. So if you know anybody in power, just let them know. I'm here for them, free of charge. But I want to share this message with you in light of what we're heading into in just a couple of months with the election and all of the attention um, that's being given to this race um, for for good reason. It's important uh, who is in charge. Um, It's important who is in office. Um, At the same time, I want to help us know who's really in charge and who really is ruler over all, and Psalm 2 directs us in that way. Um, So that's where we're going to be this morning, Psalm chapter 2, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth Set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the king speaks from his throne. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, 
Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who's in charge? That's an important question, isn't it? Who's in charge? Whether we're consciously thinking about it or not, this question is relevant in every area of life. Who's in charge of this worship service? Who's in charge of this building? Who's in charge of the different organizations that you work for? Who's in charge of the individual tasks that make up the organization you work for? Who's in charge of this city? Who's in charge of this nation? Who's in charge of the world? Who's in charge of the universe? Or to put it in the language of Psalm 2, who is king? Well, the message of Psalm 2 is this. God's king is king. God's king is in charge. Despite uncertain circumstances, God's king is king. Despite fears you may have about what's going on in the world, what's going on in your world, God's king is king. Despite anxiety you may feel about who's in charge on an earthly level, God's king is king. God's king is in charge today, right now. That's the message of Psalm 2. And here's how we'll walk through this psalm in order to receive this message. First, the problem. Second, God's response to the problem. And finally, the conclusion. Problem, God's response, conclusion. So first, the problem. Now as a Christian, you might say, well, this is pretty obvious. God's king is king, God's king is in charge. Who would argue with that? And there's a sense in which no one's arguing whether or not God's in charge. Rather, they're angry God's in charge. So in verse one, David wonders, Why do the nations rage? That's the problem Psalm 2 is addressing, the rage of the nations. The nations aren't arguing about whether or not God is in charge. They're angry that God would be in charge. And in their rage, David says, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord. In other words, they dig in, they put themselves in this posture of rebellion and they're not budging. There's a stubbornness to their angry defiance. I remember just a couple of years ago when Meg and I were parenting toddlers, we're kind of just out of that phase now, but I remember dinner time with our toddlers could be an especially difficult time as it regarded our patience with them. Some days, We would, for example, put some cheese on his tray. And this is a certain cheese that he's happily eaten before, so safe bet, right? Not tonight. He wants the tomatoes in our salad, so he subtly drops the cheese to the ground. He refuses to be fed the cheese directly by me, or he chews the cheese up and lets it dribble out of his mouth. But eventually, he figures out he's not getting any tomatoes until he eats his cheese. 
So does he bend to his loving father's wishes for him to eat the cheese? Oh no, he digs in. He sets himself against the cheese. He cranks up the opposition. And now he's hurling the cheese across the dinner table, slapping it out of my hand, whining in desperation. This is a microcosm of the way these kings are toward God. They are dead set on flying contrary to the purposes of God. They have angrily set themselves against God and against God's king. This is the problem Psalm 2 is addressing. The rage of the nations setting themselves against God. Furthermore, their anger then leads them to devise a plan against God. Verse 1 says, the people's plot. Verse 2 says, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed king. So again, they're not arguing against the fact that God's king is king. They just don't like that God's king is king. God's kingdom is not a reality they intellectually deny. It's a reality they spiritually don't want. And so they scheme against God. They huddle together in order to create a strategy against the Lord. They take counsel together. And in verse 3, David gives us a sound bite from their huddle. So you may remember this during halftime programming of Monday Night Football. ESPN used to have a segment they called Miked Up. Miked Up. And the producers of this segment would put tiny microphones on the uniforms of football players as the game was going on so you could watch the field of them on the, you could watch the film of them on the field and hear what they were saying in the huddle. So if you don't know, football teams generally huddle up before each play in order to communicate with one another what they're about to do to go defeat the opposing team. So it's a really neat segment because you get to hear the players strategize in real time and then go execute. This is essentially what's going on in verse three. We get inside the huddle of these rebel kings. We're inside the room where they're taking counsel together against God. And this is what we hear, verse three. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what they say. So this is the goal of the raging nations. Self-rule. This is the purpose of the rulers plotting against God. Self-autonomy. They want independence from the kingdom of God. Break these chains off of me. Get these cords away from me. I want to rule my life. I can rule my world better than God. So in light of the experience of these kings, let's do some soul work on ourselves. So the emotion of anger, I'm convinced, is a gift from God. God experiences anger. Jesus felt rage. And we too, as God's image bearers, are capable of experiencing godly anger. So anger in and of itself is a good thing. However, because we're broken by sin very often, Anger malfunctions in our souls. And in my own experience, I've found that closely related to sinful anger is a desire for control. I want things to go my way. I want people to follow my plan. I want to be king. And if not, take heed for my coming wrath. That's exactly what's going on with these kings. They are raging 
because they want control. So when we experience anger, it's a good opportunity to pause and reflect on what's happening inside. I've heard it said before that our emotions are like windows into our souls. And for these kings, and sometimes for us, the emotion of anger is a window into this heart-level craving for self-rule. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. The rage of the nations. That's the problem wherein this psalm fits. Earthly rulers are angry that God's in charge, and he's created reality with him at the top. He's created reality in a way they don't like, so they plot against God and against God's anointed king. That's the problem. God's response to the problem. So put yourself in God's shoes. The highest officers in the world are fuming with wrath against you. They're taking counsel together so as to overthrow your kingdom. They don't want your revelation. They despise your instruction. And they have deliberately set themselves in a position of antagonism toward you. How would you respond? This made me think about elementary school classrooms and the way universities prepare elementary school teachers before a college student can graduate with an elementary education degree, they have to be what we used to call teacher's aide. They may go by other names now in other places, but that's what we used to call them when I was in school, teacher's aides. And they were college students training to be elementary school teachers, and they would come to our class every day for a semester and basically get on-the-job training. They would watch our experienced teacher and learn through observation. And as time went by, the teacher's aide would be able to lead some of the main teaching sessions themselves. It's basically an apprenticeship model. Now, why do universities think they need to include such training for elementary ed majors? Well, imagine this bright young college grad is about to be given a room full of six to seven-year-olds I've been a substitute teacher before, so I know these schoolrooms can become borderline chaotic pretty quick. You know, it's arts and crafts time and little Johnny's drinking the glue. Little Billy just took his shirt off. Sally and Jane are squabbling over crown collection. Little Bobby's standing on his desk showing off his prized artwork. It could be pretty crazy. Now, without that teacher's aid experience, how do you think a brand new teacher would respond to such turmoil? Well, I can speak for myself. If I was in that situation, I would panic. I'm supposed to be in charge of this nonsense, all of this disorder. Nothing is going the way it's supposed to. All controls are thrown off. All boundaries are broken through. Oh yeah, code red, I'd be freaking out. Now this, I think, is a helpful picture of what's going on in God's world. The kings of the earth disregard, indeed they loathe God's authority. How does our God respond to such chaos? Look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So God doesn't panic. God doesn't freak out. God doesn't call an emergency meeting. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the rage of the nations. 
He doesn't flinch at their destructive schemes. He only laughs. So how discouraging for the kings of the earth. All their efforts are in vain. All they will, they will never seat, they will never unseat him who is enthroned in heaven. Their rebellious plans are laughable. And so Christian, if our God is not shaken by the threats of the world, neither do we need to be. If our God is not shaken by all the squabbling and all the wrangling and all the chasing after power, if he's not unfazed, neither do we need to be. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God's response continues in verses four and five. The Lord holds them in derision. Again, referring to these kings. The Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his anger. So God not only mockingly laughs at these rulers, he's going to deride them. He's going to speak wrathful, terrifying words. So what's he gonna say? What's God got to say that's so frightening? Verse six, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is God's response to the plans of usurpation against him. My king is enthroned on Zion. My king has been installed on my holy hill. My king has been enthroned. He's been installed by me. I have set my king on Zion. So these kings have stubbornly doubled down in their rebellion against God, but our God is not intimidated. He doesn't panic. He's not scared. He says, I've crowned my king. He's enthroned. He's installed. He's not going anywhere. That's how God responds to the rage of the nations. My king is king. Then in verse seven, we hear from God's king himself. The true king speaks from his throne. Verse seven, the king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. Okay, so now God's king is going to quote words that God spoke to him. Again, verse seven, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. So God tells his king, you are my son. And the king is now saying, this is what God told me. I'm his son. He has birthed me as his own child. Now, where does this sonship language come from? And why is the king bringing it up here? Well, the source of this language clearly appears to come from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a covenant with King David. God makes promises to David, and these promises have to do with making David and David's sons king over Israel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And in verse 14, God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So that's where this language come from, What's we, what we refer to as the Davidic covenant. Promises God made to David that there would be a son of David who is king over Israel and God knows as father. But why would the king in Psalm 2 be bringing that up right now? 
Why is he responding to the rage of the nations by remembering how God told him that he's God's son? Well, imagine that you are president of the United States and things aren't going well for your administration. Foreign powers are breathing threats against you. Political enemies are hurling criticism at you and even some of your own supporters have now abandoned your leadership. It's a pretty tough time for you as president. Your hope and confidence are deflated and you start questioning whether or not you're the right person for this job. Then in walks your chief of staff, your closest friend and political ally. And in order to boost your morale, he replays the video of your inauguration. A time just a few years ago when everyone was excited and encouraged, but more than that, it was this sacred, solemn moment where the people of the United States all together said, you're our man or woman. You're our leader. You are in charge. And now all of a sudden you're reminded of the truth. You're confirmed in your identity and you're strengthened for your task to press forward. Well, that's similar to what's going on in verse seven. The nations are raging, rival kings are threatening, and God's king responds by remembering the words spoken at his inauguration as king. Words spoken not by the people of the United States, but words spoken by the God of the universe. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So God's king is saying, I will not respond to these raging threats with fear or cowardice. Rather, I'm remembering who I am and who put me in charge. God enthroned me on Zion, and I am God's son. Brothers and sisters, when God's kingdom seems to be in peril, God's king is not upset. He's steadfast, he's confident, he's secure, he knows who he is, God's son. So take hope, be steady yourself, even in dark times. God's king is king. In verses eight and nine, God, verses eight and nine God's king continues quoting what God said to him at his inauguration. Verses eight and nine, God says to his king, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God not only ensures his king of his divine sonship, he also ensures him that the nation's rage is useless. The people's plotting is in vain. Because all God's king has to do is ask. And the nations will belong to him. And God's king will break them with a rod of iron. He'll smash them in pieces like a brittle piece of pottery. So that's how God responds to his conspirators. He mocks their futile attempts to overthrow his kingdom. He horrifies them by reasserting that his king is set on Zion and God's king himself responds to the turmoil by remembering who he is, the son of God. And God's king recalls God's promise that he would possess the ends of the earth. No panic, no intimidation, 
no confusion. So God responds to the nations with righteous anger and rock-solid confidence. He is king. Now, before we move on, we must ask, who is God's king? Who is this anointed one against whom the nations rage? Who is this kingly figure who knows God as father? Who is the king who will take the nations as his heritage and break them with a rod of iron? Well, in Acts chapter 4, Jesus' disciples are still in Jerusalem, and they're praying. I'm going to read this prayer for you. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. The disciples pray, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they continue. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed against him were both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And of course... What Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel did, setting themselves against the Lord, was crucify Jesus, God's anointed. The fury of the nations had gathered its fullest steam when they raged against Jesus, piercing him through. Jesus is the anointed king against whom the nations raged. But in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is ministering the gospel and he says this, this is Acts 13, verse 32. He says to those he was preaching, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. And then he quotes Psalm two. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the Apostle says God has fulfilled his gospel promises by raising Jesus. As also it is written, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it seems then that Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus as God's way of saying, this is my son. His throne is set on Zion, his kingdom is forever. Jesus then is the kingly figure who knows God as father. And in Matthew chapter 28, the risen king commissions his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus instructs his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations. So Jesus is the one who will take the nations as his heritage through the mission that we've been given to spread the gospel is how God's king possesses the ends of the earth. And when our commission is over, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, says that Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus, friends, is God's king who will break the nations as with a rod of iron. God's king is king. God's king is Jesus. The problem, the rage of the nations. God's response, 
he sets the risen King Jesus on his throne. And the conclusion, submit to God's king. In light of God's promise that Jesus will subdue the nations with an iron rod, David now pleads with the kings of the earth. Verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the apostle John wrote in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on the nations. Yet David here doesn't taunt the kings of the earth. He doesn't demean them. He appeals to them. He pleads with them. Don't let this be your end. Kiss the son, God's king. There's refuge to be had in him. There's blessedness to be enjoyed in him. But the quest for self-rule has to be abandoned. Serve the Lord with fear. Submit to his kingdom. So in view of David's plea, I now urge you, and you you may not be a ruler of the earth, but this principle still holds. Make Jesus the center of your life. And yes, this means acknowledging that his wrath and anger towards self-centeredness is real. But in fleeing a self-ruled life, you're moving toward true happiness, true flourishing, what David calls blessedness. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Life as it was meant to be lived with God on the throne and us happily serving him, happily taking orders. So who's in charge? Who is king? Some kings may infuriate against God and attempt to break out of his kingdom, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has crowned his king in Zion. The Lord has decreed, this is my son. The nations are his, the scepters in his hand. All authority in heaven and on earth has been invested in him, authority even over death itself. He is king, he is in charge. Kiss the son, take refuge in him. Enjoy the good life, the blessed life with him on the throne. May it be so, church, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we prepare to respond to God with praise. And before that, I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we are humbled. Lord, in light of the ways that we've lived selfishly, in light of the ways each one of us have sought to be Lord of our own lives, God, we confess and we pray for your forgiveness through the cross. And God, may we see in Jesus a good king, a servant king, a righteous 
king, a gracious king. God, lift our eyes this morning as we sing praise to him, as we remember him and his rule and resurrection and power. God, fill us with hope, fill us with confidence, even as we face a world of uncertainty. We look out and we see the nations raging, grappling for control, fighting, furious. But Lord, we look to Jesus and he's got rock solid confidence and we take refuge in him as our king. We pledge our highest allegiance to King Jesus. May it ever be so for this church. And God, we do pray for the kings of the earth. We plead with you that they would humble themselves before you. Do in them what you did in Nebuchadnezzar. Bring them to their senses, that they're just creatures. They're just men. They're broken, they're sinful, they're gonna die. Their legacy is gonna perish in light of eternity. And there's only one hope, and there's only one true king. And so God, have mercy on this community those who rule it, God, have mercy on our state. And those who rule it, God, have mercy on our nation. Whoever rules it, have mercy. And we will trust in you until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.